Julie, welcome back to Saltier Politics. How are you? I am okay. And I ended up dressing up as a soccer player. You did, contrary to my offer of uh, a nun, a bloody nun outfit for you. But your costume looked epic. So I thought my costume looked epic. And then I got all these, I shouldn't say all these, a couple of people tweeted me. They're like, way to culturally appropriate my religion. And how could you go negative on nuns? Stop. And I was like, Happy I'm Halloween. Not, I'm not culturally appropriating people from former Yugoslavia by dressing up as a vampire. Right. Like, what? I mean, it's just, it's crazy. People are um, unhinged. Anyway, um, it was, my costume was epic. My son's costume was also epic. Um, we, it was a kind of a very Halloween-y night in New York City. Everybody was hoping that rain would hold off, and it did. And so we went trick-or-treating, uh... In New York, what you do is you go building to building. Like, it's not house to house. And all these different buildings and townhouses have candy for the kids, uh, the doorman handout, or just the owners of the townhouse sit in the stoop and hang out. So that's really cool because you get to see everybody all dressed up. It's really awesome. And then because he didn't get enough candy doing that, which, of course, he did, um, he insisted that we go trick-or-treating in our building. So we also went trick-or-treating in our building. And what happened in our building was people just left candy in big baskets outside their apartments. Oh, so he cleaned up. So when I tell you he cleaned up, like there are so many, he doesn't like chocolate. So it's not that he cleaned up, it's I cleaned up because there are all these Reese's peanut butter cups and Kit Kats. He likes Skittles and other stuff that I think is disgusting. So we have very different candy tastes. So we both made out like bandits because he decided to pick out. It was great. That's awesome. What an awesome Halloween. Well, speaking of awesome, uh, let's talk about these election results, Julie. Awesome. Where to begin? Awesome. Um, should we begin in Kentucky? Well, let's begin in Kentucky, and let's just talk about the most awesome one of all, which is actually suburban Philadelphia in Pennsylvania, which we can get to in a second. Kentucky was awesome because Matt Bevan is horrible and miserable, and teachers and healthcare workers and others struck back and essentially sent a message to Matt Bevan, who's a really mini-Trump, that they're not going to stand for it. And what's interesting is that the people who came out and swung this election were people in the suburbs. Um, Is that a big 2020 kind of indicator? To some extent, uh, not just Kentucky on its own, because obviously Kentucky elected Republicans everywhere, but Matt Bevan, other than the governor. But it's a a harbinger of things to come, not just in Kentucky, but also in Virginia and Pennsylvania, because in Virginia which used to be a purplish, it's still a purplish state, but used to be a red state because while Northern Virginia would trend Democratic, the suburbs around Richmond uh, would not. And that's how the state Republicans were able to win. What's happening now is that suburban voters and especially suburban women around places like Richmond are starting to go Democratic. And what's incredible about that is obviously that's a sign of things to come in 2020 unless something drastically changes. These are people who are just fed up with the brand of the Republican Party. And I don't want to project too much on this as a harbinger of 2020, because obviously every election is different and these are not federal elections. But it seems to me that Republicans have policies that suburban voters could get behind, but the brand has been so damaged by Trump and by the cohort of senators and congressmen and congresswomen in Washington who are going along with him in the Republican Party the voters are just saying enough is enough. We're not even looking at your policies. We're looking at 
you as a brand, and that's not good. That doesn't bode well for the Republicans as they try to claw back after Trump is gone. Uh, but the most striking is actually in places like Delaware County in Pennsylvania, Bucks County in Pennsylvania. Uh, these are all suburban counties around Philadelphia, which used to be Republican. I mean, these are sort of mainstream, mainline Republicans, sort of the Bush-type Republicans. That county just went Democrat. Those counties went Democratic uh, and that doesn't bode well for 2020 either because Virginia is somewhat in play, I suppose, but I think Virginia is going to go blue next year regardless. Kentucky is not going to go Democratic next year. I hate to break it to all my fellow Democrats, but they're going to vote um, Republican on the national level, I think, unless things really go off the rails. I mean, if we lose Kentucky, then we're winning 40 states. But uh, Pennsylvania, as you know, is a, is a swing state very much in play, and it's counties like that around Philadelphia that really can make the difference. I, I do want to say western Pennsylvania, closer to Pittsburgh and uh, certainly the Ohio border, did consolidate its Republican gains, but that's not where the population is. The population is in the suburbs around Philadelphia, and that means quite a bit for what's happening in 2020, I think. I hope. What does it say about, I guess, the campaigns that the candidates ran? It, what can candidates in other states learn from those candidates? I don't, you, think? you know, all of these elections in Jersey also had elections. In Jersey actually had very interesting elections where Democrats lost a net um, loss of two seats in the, in the state legislature, in the state assembly, in a seat um, in the state Senate, in a part, in a district that uh, is trending more and more Republican. It's in the southern part of the state. Trump won big in that district and Democrats lost, uh, legislators lost. So what it says to me really is that everybody's kind of going to the mattresses on this. There are few undecided voters. There are pockets of the country that are just consolidating around Trump. There are pockets of the country that are never Trump people, but the suburbs and specifically the more affluent college educated suburbs are trending away from the Republican party. So we'll see. I mean, lessons learned. What can the Republicans do? I'm not sure what they can do now um, other than just say enough is enough. We're going to break the fever. We're going to not just impeach Trump, but remove him from from office and go from there. But they're not going to do that because these Republicans are scared to death of primaries um, from Trump supporters. And Trump has a lock in the party for now. Uh, Look at at what's happening right now with Jim (laughs) Sessions. I mean, you've got... Jeff Sessions, excuse me, in Alabama, Senator Sessions resigned his seat to become attorney general, was Trump's like right-hand guy during the election, could not be more conservative in his voting record. And Trump is now bad-mouthing him and basically threatening to campaign against him uh, because Sessions, I guess, didn't do what Trump wanted, which is, recuse, which is not recuse himself from the Russia investigation, which, of course, Sessions should have done and did do the right thing on. So now Sessions will have, probably have a hard time winning the primary to take back his own Senate seat. What does that say when a right-wing Republican who was in lockstep with Republican orthodoxy for all these decades now has a good chance of not winning his primary because Donald Trump effectively is telling people to, to take a look at another, uh, at another challenger? That's, it's crazy what's happened to the Republican Party and why and how they've gotten to be so enthralled to Donald Trump. Well, um, I actually, so one of our commenters on, for our podcast actually had an interesting point about Trump's move to Florida, just changing subjects a little Mm -hmm. bit. 
Um, but I would love your opinion on this. So he said, uh, Ken, shout out to you. When people look at Trump's change of residency to Florida, most especially in our business, look at it as a move to avoid taxes since he is so money hungry. Ken said, I look at it differently. He is making the entire state his war room for when he gets indicted. He knows it's coming, especially since he just added Pam Bondi to his impeachment team and has Ron DeSantis as governor. They will back him to the wall. In order for him to be extradited, the feds will need DeSantis's approval. He thinks he's safe there. What do you think of that? I thought that was an interesting take. It's an interesting take. I mean, I, I, look, I think he's moving to Florida for several reasons. One is he wants to avoid taxes. And, and let's not forget why New York has higher taxes now than it did two, three years ago because of the SALT deduction that Donald Trump pushed to eliminate, which means that you can no longer eliminate state and local taxes on your federal income tax form, which means that people who live in New York, New Jersey, California, Massachusetts, coincidentally enough, all Democratic states, um, are now going to be paying a lot more in taxes thanks to Donald Trump. So that's one. Two, I think he just had a snit because the attorney general of New York is investigating him, and a judge in New York just basically said that uh, he has to pay, I think it's $2 million uh, in restitution to charities around New York State because of the way he and his family ran the Trump Foundation, uh, basically using it as a slush fund for his political and personal purposes. So uh, I think he's unhappy about that. And third of all, he knows he's not going to win New York, but I think Florida's on the cusp. Florida's a swing state. I, I, I don't know how much of a swing state it still is. I think Florida's kind of getting away from the Democrats, but you never know. And I think he wants to consolidate Florida. And I think he thinks if he lives in Florida as a Florida resident, he'll probably have a better shot of winning Florida. All of those make sense. There's no sense for him to live in New York um, anymore. He really hasn't been here. And also, he's getting up there in age, and you know everybody retires to your home state of Florida, Emily. That's where that's where that's where you go to play golf and and retire when you're either doing your after after you've served for your 25 years at IBM and get your watch, you retire to play golf in Florida, or after you get indicted and you know potentially removed from office um, or impeached, you also move to Florida. You can hang out at the villages down there; they're all big Republicans. Oh God. Okay. So all right. Um, I also wanted to check on and do some clap back you've had some quite some twitter responses <laughs> so um diana falzone wrote a great article for vanity fair and um it was about our effort to end ndas non-disclosure agreements that um, i and, and diana and gretchen carlson and, and tamara holder and juliet huddy and a whole bunch of other people have been talking about um, so I tweeted this out, I tweeted out her article and I just said, um, a wonderful story from Diana Falzone and Vanity Fair on our effort to end, end, end NDAs. We are building a movement. Join us. Um, that's all I said. So Mark Richardson at Mark 16001 wrote to me and said, tweeted, if what you think you must say is so vital, speak, take your chances in court or pay the money, pay back the money. It's a bad deal, but you signed it. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, so I tweeted back and I said, please tell that to the woman who was making $30,000 a year and had to sign an NDA as part of a small settlement. Ask her if she can afford a good lawyer to defend herself from a corporation that may sue her. We aren't doing this for ourselves. We're doing this for all women. So some guy named Joseph Tymon at Joe T123 wrote, you made $30,000 a Fox? Wow. Yeah, Joe, hard as it is to believe not everybody's focused just on themselves. No, I didn't make $30,000 a Fox. I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about a woman who wrote to me um, who said that she was making about thirty or $35,000 a year and she got fired 
before being pregnant. I don't know where she worked um, and who would fire her for being pregnant, but I can imagine there are a couple of establishments out there that don't want women who are pregnant working there. And she essentially said that she was forced to sign an NDA as part of her um, settlement. And she didn't want to, but she was desperate. She needed the money um, because she had a baby on the way. And so she did it. And she now cannot discuss this institution. And uh, presumably this institution is continuing to do this to other women as well. And silencing them so they can't speak, which means that we don't know who they are, which means that we don't know that they are engaging in abhorrent, disgusting behavior where they are firing women for being pregnant or for getting pregnant. And if we don't know about it, that means we can't, oh, I don't know, boycott them. So, yeah, as hard as it is to believe, Joe, I'm not talking about me. And in fact, I don't think that I, I don't want to speak for Gretchen or for, for any of the other women there, but we're not doing this for ourselves. Um, I'm just fine. I had a career before Fox. I had a career during Fox. I had a career after Fox that had nothing to do with Fox. Um, we're not doing this for us. And this is not specifically about any one network. And it's not specifically about any one industry. And in fact, I don't, this is about an entire culture on both sides of the aisle, because I know progressive politicians that, that enforce NDAs against women as well. Uh, it is about an entire culture that wants to isolate women so that they can't tell their stories so that others don't know that their stories exist and they all exist, we all exist in silos. And the most incredible thing to me in the last couple of weeks since I began talking about this publicly is the number of women who've reached out to me and said, oh my God, Thank you for speaking up. I don't feel that I'm alone anymore. A lot of these women thought they were by themselves and that these stories only happened to them. And that's the most toxic and awful part about this, Emily, is that people really don't understand that this is so prevalent and so endemic and just so crazy that people are don't understand that when you make women sign an NDA, that woman can't say what happened to her so that other women who had the same thing happen to her to them don't know that others are going through the same thing they're going through. It really is so isolating, um, and it's awful. And I mean, I, I, I wish I could read this email from this woman um, who sent me this email, and I'll just paraphrase it. It's a long email, but she was just basically saying to me that when, when she saw Gretchen and me on CBS a couple of weeks ago or last week, she was in tears because she finally heard somebody talking about something that had been bothering her for 15 years. It's actually, the email is beautiful, but she, this, her story is heartbreaking. And uh, look, we have the ability and luckily, um, the, we, we, can, we can speak because we have a microphone. Um, and we can speak because we know reporters who will cover the story. We can speak because there's a movie coming out about Fox News where we are featured so that people are naturally asking us what's true and what's not true. And we can't talk about it, by the way. We can't discuss what, what's accurate in these movies and what's not accurate because of our NDA. Um, but this isn't, we're not doing this, or at least I'm not doing this. I'm not speaking for, for anybody else's motivations because I am trying to help myself. I'll, I'm just fine, and I'll be just fine. Um, I'm trying to help women who don't either have the microphone or the megaphone to be able to speak, who can't contact reporters who will cover the story because they don't know any, who can't, uh, and not the story about Fox. This is not about Fox, by the way. This is about the entire system that these NDAs have created. And these companies are across the gamut. And I don't want to pretend this is just limited to a conservative television station, because as I keep saying, I know plenty 
of progressive politicians um, and progressive companies that, that enforce the same kind of NDAs. So this is an industry-wide issue, not just industry, this is a cultural issue. Um, we're doing it for them. And you know, a lot of these women don't have money, uh, like the $30,000 a year woman who uh, doesn't have the money to get a lawyer on the phone or has a lawyer on a retainer to see what she can and can't say. Um, and that's awful. And that should end. And so this is not so much a clapback as an explanation, I guess, for what people are saying. And for everybody who's saying to me, oh, well, you signed it, you signed it, you signed it, you know, I can do a whole different separate show on what you go through when you've signed these lawsuits, when you, when you settle these lawsuits, when you file these lawsuits, and how you just want it to end because you can't move on with your life when it's hanging over you. And you understand that the only way it ends is if you either A, spend three to four years litigating it eventually having it end up in court and then you could say what you want to say or B you just say I want this done let's settle but every settlement is part of an NDA I'll also go a step further a lot of people are forced to sign I've signed two NDAs in my life I keep saying that one was with Fox the other was with an organization where you had to sign an NDA as a condition of employment um, and you think that the condition of employment would mean that you can't discuss proprietary information about that employment, uh, trade secrets, things like that. But no, in fact, it's sometimes used and often used to prevent women from telling their stories about toxic behavior that happens um, in organizations. So uh, again, this is something that I think is very, very critical for people to understand. And furthermore, I think it's very critical to understand that we're not doing this because we're trying to earn a buck or we're trying to stay relevant, or we're trying to do any of this stuff. We're doing it because we have uh, the ability to do it, and a lot of other people, and women specifically, don't, and that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to help everybody, not just ourselves. I also was thinking about the psychological trauma that must come with it. Like, I don't know, just having worked with, with you and with Diana and... And, and knowing like that you guys are going through something, but then also like as a friend, also not being able to talk about it or anything like that. It's like, and then also us, you know, coworkers not really finding out about it until things go public. It's just like, you guys have been so professional and just having to have a full work day and kind of suffer in silence that that must be really tough. Well, you know, um, it was tough and, uh, you really find out who your friends are after you file. You really find out who your friends are after you file these lawsuits, and and you find out even after you leave an organization um, who your friends are afterwards. You know, Diana, ironically enough, Diana and I didn't know each other um, really at all uh, when we were both at Fox, and we got to know each other well afterwards because she was having a baby um, on her own, and I had had a baby on my own a few years prior, and so she and I got to really know each other, and I I cannot think of a better person or a more stand-up woman or a stronger woman um, than Diana Falzone. But uh, look, unfortunately, you're one of my closest friends. I can't even talk to you um, about what what happened. I can't talk to anybody about it. And that's isolating as well. But, but more importantly, it means that there are plenty of other women out there who might be going through the same thing that, that can't talk about it either. And psychologically, that's tough. I mean, it's really tough. You have to maintain this whole, you know, kind of sphinx-like demeanor about all of this. And especially when you have um, movies coming out, like this bombshell movie that's coming out next month, which, I, again, I haven't seen, so I can't 
speak to whether it's accurate or not accurate, but what I can tell you is um, when I do end up seeing it, if I do end up seeing it, I will not be able to tell you even after I see it whether it's accurate or not accurate because I can't discuss anything. And that's problematic. I mean, it's problematic when your life story is being told by somebody else um, and you can't comment and, and you can't tell your own story. It's, that's very strange. I mean, it's very strange that somebody else is able to tell what they think is your story, but you can't tell your own. Um, and that becomes troubling in and of itself. I, I don't begrudge this movie. And in fact, I'll tell you, if this movie brings attention to women's issues that I care strongly about, more power to it. Um, I thought that the Showtime miniseries, The Loudest Voice brought um, a lot of these issues to the forefront. And I think that's great. But um, Gretchen Carlson, for example, was a key character, was the key character in that in that movie. And she can't tell me what was accurate about how she was portrayed and, and not accurate. I mean, I don't think she can. Um, I never asked her. But um, I mean, that says something. I think that, that that's difficult. Um, and I think that's something that is difficult for any woman to go through. Never mind. But, but again, we are blessed. We have a megaphone to do this. You and I are talking about this now and, and, and other people are listening, although we can't, I can't provide details. There are other women who just don't have any outlet to discuss what happened with them. Um, and that's hard too. That's very hard. I just, I just remember, I don't know the day that your, um, the stuff was announced with Fox. And I remember looking, just finding out what green room you're in. Cause I just wanted to be there for you. Like I didn't want to prior anything, just wanted to be there. And I think what you guys are doing is really good too for allies and for people who support women and support people put in really tough situations to kind of not also not accept bad treatment of others when they see it too. And just more people talking about it become, it becomes an issue and it becomes also unacceptable. So I think that's really. Yeah. And I appreciate that. And and you were wonderful. Um, and again, you know, you like a lot of other people, um, who worked at the network, we're in a very tough bind because you work for a company where uh, obviously you're employed by them still. And I, I know that you, um, you you couldn't say or do much um, other than just, just come by and say hi and, and, and just you know tell me that you were thinking about me. And I think that's wonderful. And, and a lot of other people did the same. And, and then you think about the fact that a lot of people you expected to do the same, who you were very close friends with actually didn't. Um, so as I said, you really kind of find out who your friends are when that happens. And it's not something I would wish on anybody cause you kind of don't want to ever put people to the test that way. But it did make me, it, it really changed me in a very profound way, um, going forward where I had gone from being somebody who was very career oriented and, and sort of thinking about how I could move ahead to really thinking much more globally about, this paradigm that we all operate under and the system that we all operate under and how it's the system that really needs to change not that we need to operate within the system but that we need to break the system and start from scratch and rebuild something better that that really works much better for women well this is really great stuff um i wanted to move on to another story that really caught my attention this week i don't know if you read about the rapper ti talking he was on a podcast and he pretty much said he attended yearly virginity tests at the gynecologist with his daughter to make sure her hymen was intact 
um, I, did you see this story? I, I didn't. What? How? Until um, she was, he went with her. So she's right now during in her first year at college, but like pretty much since since she started going to the gynecologist, um, and Ti is a, a famous rapper. He's been in a lot of different songs, mm-hmm. like, um, but yeah. So he escorts his uh, his daughter to the uh, OBGYN and has pretty much to in, which which by the way, these virginity tests in the World Health Organization is completely said they're unethical and they should be banned to see if the hymen's intact. But he, he's oh, gone God. with his daughter. And, and the fact that this is still... How, mean, how old is his daughter? She's now in college. She's in her first year of college. So, I'm he's sorry. been with her since like pretty much she started going to OBGYN. Because of HIPAA laws, is he even allowed to do that after she's a there's, there's like certain details where he was able to talk to the doctor, but I just think that's kind of crazy that this is happening well first of all um <laughs> and it's not even an accurate teller of whether someone's a virgin or not so first of all uh, i mean i hope she's not a horseback rider or anything i else. know right <laughs> that that, <laughs> that would have made that um virginity test uh, a false positive or a false negative um i don't know what to even say about that that's super yeah. creepy right it's super intrusive um as a mother uh, of a granted of a son, uh, I would say that my philosophy about raising a child, and I am not an expert. I only have one, so I never pretend to know what I'm talking about. It's not like I'm the Duggars or the Dugars, whatever their names are. I don't have a hundred, but where I think I had a good relationship and a wonderful relationship with my mother, and I think the reason I never got into trouble as a kid and never went to college and went nuts like so many people did, my freshman year roommate went very nuts when she got to college because she was raised in this kind of oppressive um, household from what I can understand. But the reason I never did is because my mother always trusted me. And because she had put this trust in me from a very young age not to do anything and because she didn't double check or she didn't check up on me to make sure I wasn't lying to her. I never wanted to let her down. Um, and because I was entrusted with her faith in me, I never wanted to shatter it. And, um, I'm not pretending I didn't take, uh, a sip of scotch every now and then when I was underage, which I certainly did. And I got into my share of, you know, dumb stuff like that. But in terms of really bad behavior, I just never did because nobody ever expected me to. My parents never expected me to behave awfully. So I never did. Um, and I think that's the best thing. I mean, I, listen, I, I can't speak to this particular TI situation, Emily, but I think that, 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 yeah. that situation, the psychological profile of somebody like that is that woman will get to college and just go insane. Right. And just start sleeping around. I specifically, I'm not talking about her because right. I would no, never just ever... based on even like my friends too, the ones who are the most oppressed at home went nuts. Went nuts in college, <laughs> yeah. right? Like it's, it's the rite of passage in college. Um, right. And I never went nuts in college because I never had any reason to feel like I couldn't go nuts right. at home. Right. Um, and I think the best way if the parents are concerned is to just talk, talk to your kids and be open with them about that, not be about sexual health and all that, not be oppressive about it. And what's, uh, do they get into the, in the story? Like, why did he want her to stay a virgin? Is this a, she has to be a virgin until she's married? Is it she's not old enough to have sex? She's not, um, she, I don't want her to get pregnant? Yeah, just, what's, what's the reasoning? Is it just a religious thing? Not religious, just pretty much holding his daughter up to a certain standard. And I guess that standard is being pure somehow, but he doesn't hold his sons to the same. Oh, he doesn't? He has sons? Standards. Yeah. And oh. like on one of the reality shows he was on when his son was 15, it was revealed that he had had sex and he was just pretty much fine with it. 
Remember when Britney Spears went through this whole, because we both love Britney, through this whole, like, I'm going to be a virgin until marriage thing, and then it turned out, while she was saying that, she was shacked up with Justin Timberlake? I mean, like, I, here, here's how I look at it, right? I could see at a time when women would get pregnant um, and uh, men didn't, obviously, and still don't. But at a time when birth control exists, if your fear is that... Um, this girl is going to get pregnant, so don't have sex until you're ready to have a baby. There's plenty of birth control that he could provide or have his daughter take to avoid that. If it's a question of purity and she needs to stay pure, but the sons don't. Then you just need to reassess. Yeah, you need to reassess. Because why is the woman supposed to be pure, but the guys are able to go and, and have sex with whoever they want? And if it's a question of maturity and she's not mature at the age of 14 or 15 to have sex, I can completely get behind that, except that if that's the standard, believe me, every 15-year-old guy I know is a lot less mature than any 15-year-old girl I know. So if that's the standard, then that should apply to your sons as well. The only difference between men and women in this scenario is that women are the ones who have to carry the consequences of an unintended pregnancy. Uh, And so there are steps you can take to mitigate that if you think ahead. And, um, by the way, if if his 15 year old, if that's the concern, then if his 15 year old son got some girl pregnant, I would hope that he would have to suffer the consequences of that too. So this whole story is creepy and awful and and there's gotta be a HIPAA law or something preventing a father from accessing his daughter's birth control records that way. Right. So, so Julie's turning to, what are you salty about this week? Well, this story, because I didn't hear about it until you just brought it up to me. I'll tell you what I'm salty about. Right before we sit down to do this podcast, I happened to open the good old Twitter, which I really should not even read because it upsets me. But I come to find out that Vladimir Putin invited Donald Trump to the May Day Parade in Moscow, and Donald Trump's considering going. Julie, for our viewers who don't, or listeners who don't know what the May Day Parade is, please let them well, know. Well, Emily, I will let you know. So I've attended one or two May Day parades in my time in Moscow. Um, granted, it was during the Soviet days. They got rid of those parades after the collapse of the Soviet Union, I think for a period of time, unless until Putin brought it back, which tells you exactly what they're thinking. So the way I recall the May Day Parade of 1979 going, and my understanding is this is the same pattern that continues today, it's a bunch of tanks and missiles rolling down Red Square, and uh, a reviewing stand, as I recall, atop of Lenin's tomb, and... Um, a bunch of people in Soviet and now Russian military uniforms goose-stepping down the cobblestones of Red Square outside the Kremlin. And um, the whole message of this parade, which is not so subtle, is, hey, look at these ICBMs. We can destroy you in 30 seconds the West if we wanted to. So first of all, it's a totally aggressive display of military might, and not just for the sake of military might, but as a warning signal to the West that we can come for you anytime we want. But even if it weren't that, you're about to honor um, a military parade where you're honoring the military that is currently trying to annex as much of Ukraine as possible. I mean, they are actively, actively, actively trying to annex Ukraine. They've already annexed Crimea, part of Ukraine, and now they're trying to annex Eastern Ukraine. And if they are successful there, they'll, they won't stop till they get to Kiev. And then once they get Ukraine, they'll probably move on to the other remaining 13 former Soviet republics. Because as you recall, Vladimir Putin said the greatest tragedy of the 20th century was the dissolution of the Soviet Union, not World War II, not the Holocaust, the dissolution of 
an evil empire. So uh, to my Republican friends who keep talking about the party of Ronald Reagan, I mean, Ronald Reagan must be rolling over in his grave. Are you kidding me? What? An American president is going to stand at a reviewing stand and watch a military parade with Vladimir Putin, who's annexing Ukraine as we speak? What? What? I mean, that's beyond making me salty. It's making my head explode. Yeah, that's that's not... There's there's really nothing positive that could come out of that. <laughs> nothing. No, no, no. There's nothing positive about it. Um, it's... I, I don't I don't understand it. I don't understand the silence of people like, oh, I don't know, Lindsey Graham, this war hawk, this, you know, person who was wanting to stand up to Russia all these years. I mean, Ben Sass, where are you, Ben Sass? Where are you, Lindsey Graham? All these people, why are they just and like there's a there's a there's a collective shrug in the Republican Party. Could you imagine the visual of Donald Trump standing on top of Lenin's tomb? if that's where the reviewing stand is. If it's not on top of Lenin's tomb, it'll be next to Lenin's tomb. I mean, Red Square is not that big, uh, so it's going to be somewhere in close proximity. Outside the Kremlin? By the way, Mitt Romney, speak up. Remember when you said, and rightly so, back during the 2012 campaign, how our greatest geopolitical foe was, was Russia, and he was right, and Obama was wrong for mocking him for it? Uh, and I think I said so at the time, but Mitt Romney, speak up. I mean, speak up. Somebody's got to speak up about this. And the Republican Party collectively needs to speak up about this. That's just insane. And how much more of this nonsense are they going to defend? At which point do they just say, I, I can't take it anymore? I think it's like a massive like penis measuring thing just happening right in front of them as they're just sitting together like, look, look how big my ICBM is. Or like, you know, it's, it's just, just like, I mean, it's just ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> that's it i mean i just can't believe it i, I cannot what is your what is your mom saying by the way does she just shake her head and like walk out of the room when, oh like, my mom you know my mom just she can't both my parents just can't, can't my, my parents can't deal i mean my parents attitude about donald trump and remember my dad if you recall who will be a, very annoyed and offended if i if he hears me say this sorry dad i know you won't talk to me for a few months but it's true is a total one issue voter and the one issue is israel and when I say one issue voter, like Netanyahu level one issue voter when it comes to Israel. So he was not a fan of Barack Obama, to say the least, and I think wanted to vote for John McCain, and I suspect he probably did. Um, and I think he wanted to vote for Mitt Romney, um, because, literally because of Israel. So this is not somebody who reflexively is um, a, a, you know, a diehard Democrat, although he is a Democrat, but his, his overriding issue is the state of Israel. Um, and he, like, he looks at, he just can't believe it. Like my parents just can't believe it. I'm not even talking about the stuff with Russia. Like they generally just can't believe it. And like, I can't believe it. It's just, it's great. Like what? It's just a general state of disbelief. It's just insane. Insane. Um, okay. Well, also some insanity. What I'm salty about this week, I just interviewed friend of the pod, former Secretary of State Joel Rubin, mm-hmm. and we talked about the cartel violence in Mexico after the killing of that. Oh yeah, the women and children, and um, brought to the attention about the American gun problem in Mexico. That the ATF, when they collect guns in Mexico, over seventy percent of those guns are from America or exported from America and have gotten uh, to Mexico, and that's a really big issue because. 
I, I think policy-wise, when we say that we want to end cartel violence there, and yet most of that cartel violence is pushed by American guns, that's a real problem. Yeah, so right now I'm having flashbacks to Republicans being like, remember Fast and Furious when Eric Holder sold guns to Mexico? Yeah, okay, if you guys are furious about that, how about the fact that it's our guns that are that are used to do this? Right. And uh, it's just, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. What, the, what, what, what else can I say other than yes, amen? Right, that's it. <laughs> a um, woman, as you would say. Yes. Yep. A woman to that. Hopefully next week will be less salty, but I don't think so. I don't know, you know. Well, let's let just positive election results. That's a good What's making to... you not salty, Emily? What's making you happy? Um, I think I th- I'm getting empowered by you and a lot of other women speaking out. Just well, reading you. about it, That's that gives a lot of hope for the future. Yeah, I, th- I appreciate that. That's actually making me less salty, too, because at a time when I think our politics are kind of dark, I think this is something everybody can get behind on a bipartisan level. And again, I want to be very clear. This is not a problem that is just endemic to any one organization. It's a bipartisan problem. As I said, there are progressive people who call themselves progressive pro-women politicians who enforce these NDAs, and there are... Um, conservative media organizations that enforce these NDAs and everybody in between. And um, so I would hope that anybody listening to this who is a conservative, join us. I mean, seriously, we'll, we'll work with anybody. But really, please join us, get in touch, tell us your story, um, let us know how you want to help if you want to help. But we are really, I keep saying this, we're launching a national organization. We'll have much more to say about this next month, but we're launching a national organization um, to stand up for women, and I don't mean just stand up for women at NDAs, I mean on arbitration, I mean on equal pay for equal work. Uh, you know, it's time, and maybe this is the time, Emily, maybe this is just when things are darkest that people realize that they can just reach beyond themselves and reach beyond their immediate day-to-day and, and really work to, to break the system, and maybe that's what we need to just shatter, shatter the system almost, and uh, hopefully that's what we'll do everybody together on both sides of the aisle. That is the best note to end on. Oh, thank you. All right. Happy weekend, everybody.